Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning, and thanks, uh, Dr. Allen, for this opportunity. We are good partners uh, with Midwestern Seminary and Kansas-Nebraska Convention. I have uh, actually been on convention staff for 21 years, and as Dr. Allen uh, said, I just uh, in March became executive director for the convention, so I started there 21 years ago and uh, actually served in a church in Kansas, Nebraska. So it's a great, great place to serve, and I encourage you, if you're a student and you're looking for a place to serve, we'd love to have you in our convention. If you're graduating... As Dr. Allen mentioned, we'd love to have you consider Kansas and Nebraska as a pastoral role, a ministry staff role, church planting role, whatever that might be. We have campus ministries on 21 of our college campuses, our Christian Challenge. We would love to have you as a part of that, too. It's good to see uh, Dr. Swain here, too. Dr. Swain, thank you for your leadership and the worship team. We're going to talk about worship this morning, so that's a great lead-in for that. I, too, am looking forward to for the church conference next week. Uh, looking forward to being here, and I mentioned church planting. Our lead church planter catalyst, Ryan Johnston, is actually bringing 63 of our church planters and their wives and some of their leaders next week all in mass to come to For the Church. So that's the kind of a relationship we have with Kansas, Nebraska, and Midwestern Seminary. So let's get into the text this morning. We're going to look at Mark chapter 12 in just a few moments, but this last year, as we all uh, tried to figure out what worship looked like, we made, had to make some radical adjustments in how we do worship from week to week. And I believe, and I think many of us believe, that, that how we used to do worship before the pandemic and how we do worship after the pandemic will never be exactly the same again. And, and I would say it probably shouldn't or we haven't learned anything from this season. But one reality of that is the, the principles before the pandemic of worship and the principles after the pandemic, whenever that might be, haven't changed, even though our practices sometimes have to. Why we worship hasn't changed, but how we worship often has to. So in the next few minutes, we're going to look at this text that reminds us of some of those foundational principles that, that Jesus outlined for the, the scribes and the Pharisees in that great commandment that sometimes we get so caught up in the worship practices that we forget those worship principles. As we talk about these worship principles, I want to remind you that those principles of worship leadership are not just for those singers in their songs, but they're for every one of you as ministry leaders in your congregation. You are worship leaders. And I'm sure Dr. Swain has mentioned that numerous times in his classes before too. So Mark chapter 12, it's recorded that Jesus has been teaching using parables, and we all know uh, what those parables are, but those parables, that's literally something that's cast alongside something else. So Jesus' parables were stories that were cast alongside uh, a truth in order to illustrate that deeper theological truth. The chief priests and the elders knew that Jesus was referring to them in some of those parables in his teaching earlier in chapter 12. And so they're asking him questions to try to trap him or catch him so that they might act, actually find him treasonous so they could arrest him. What was interesting, though, is his responses to their questions were, were right answers, and they couldn't really catch him because he was giving them right answers. Which brings us then to chapter 12, verse 28, and, and that text. One of the scribes, it says this, one of the scribes approached, and when he heard them debating and saw that Jesus uh, answered them well, he asked him, which command is the most important of all? 
Let me stop here for just a moment before we get into the rest of those, those few verses there. That question that, that the, the scribe asked was a question that they were constantly asking each other. Which of these commandments is the greatest? Of those 613 precepts or laws that they had, they, they were debating about some of those that were commandments and some of those that were prohibitions. And so the scribe was asking Jesus in that moment, which one of these commands is the greatest of those all? And then Jesus responded then, a little bit later in verse 29, Jesus answered, The most important is, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now again, let me stop there for just a moment, because instead of Jesus immediately answering that question, he came back to a text that was familiar to them, the Shema. Found it in Deuteronomy chapter 6. He came back to that text, and, and I, I believe in that moment that, that Jesus had them in the palm of his hand because the Shema was that, that foundational text to their prayer life. The Shema was what they would teach their children, much like we teach our children how to pray before they go to bed to, at night. And so they would, they would say that text before they went to bed at night, and they would say it first thing in the morning. And those religious people would wear it in those little leather boxes, the phylacteries on their head and on their arm, so they had that text with them at all times. In fact, it was so sacred to them that, that sometimes in an act of humility and, and to, to block out the world, they would cover their eyes with their right hands as they said that text, listen or hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Shema states that God is one and that we should love him with all our being and teach this to the next generation. What a great challenge for us as we think about this worship understanding. See, it's a great challenge for us in worship leadership that our calling is not only to worship ourselves and our congregations, but to teach the next generation how to worship too, to lead and teach them how to worship. Jesus continued then in verse 30 and 31. He said this. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is love your neighbor as yourself. And he ended with, there is no greater command than these. No greater commandment than these. So Jesus challenged them, and I think it's a challenge to us too, as we think about what it means to love God or worship God consistently in spirit and in truth. The first thing that Jesus said is we must love God with all our heart, with all our heart. And the heart is often a symbol of our emotions or how we feel. We, but we have, when we have a relational breakup, we often say our, our heart is broken. And when we're grieving, we often say our heart is heavy. When we're happy or, or joyful, we op often say our heart is full. And worship is indeed an emotional response, but it's more than just a feeling worked up by what we sing or play. In fact, worship that's just contingent on a musical feeling that occurs may not be worship at all, but instead nostalgia. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Nostalgia is that sentimental remembrance or that, that stirs those happy or meaningful recollections of something that occurred in the past. And so then nostalgia can cause us as worship leaders to uh, romanticize or idealize or maybe embellish those past worship experiences. And if those past worship experiences uh, are not elicited by the, the songs or the singers, then, then the congregation or even we can leave that place believing that worship couldn't and didn't occur. As a result, we sometimes attempt to recreate those divine moments or events or even seasons based almost completely on the, the feelings that were originally stirred, and then we call that worship. But it, again, it may be nostalgia. 
There's another danger too. If we base it just on feeling, then sometimes novelty can surface. Novelty is that quality of being new or original or unusual, just to be new or original or unusual. Uh, so a, a, a novelty entertains for a short period of time until another novelty surfaces. Let me give you an example. So uh, a college freshman going to college for the first time, it's novel for that student to be out from under the responsibilities and discipline of their parents. And it's novel until they have to do laundry for the first time. And think about that child at the birthday party. He goes to the birthday party and there are tons of presents there. That first present as they open it is novel until they open the second present. So novelty, as it relates to this, can cause us as worship leaders to over-innovate or over-stimulate or maybe even over-imitate. Then each Sunday becomes an exercise in trying to surpass the creativity of the previous Sunday. And when that excessive worship novelty surfaces, our focus is often on the creative instead of the creator. Worship is indeed emotional. But it's more than that feeling worked up by what we sing or play. There's a second thing that Jesus said too. He, the second principle, that commandment when he said, we must love God with all our soul. This kind of parallels the first one. Loving God with our soul means that worship, worship begins on the inside out, not the outside in. Our soul reflects our relationship with Jesus. So worship is not our attempts to be with Jesus. Worship is our response to having been with Jesus can't miss that. True worship doesn't begin with our worship actions. True worship begins on the inside in the depth of our soul, and then it's expressed or manifested on the outside in our worship actions. Sometimes we get that, we get that backwards. We invert that cause and effect. Now, I'm not going to get in the weeds here, but let's talk about that cause and effect understanding of worship. Cause and effect is that relationship when, when a, a person or an action or a thing makes another thing or an action or an event occur. So a, a cause must always precede an effect. God's revelation is the cause. Our response is the effect. God's revelation is that's when he reveals himself to us, his will, his activity, his attributes, his judgment, sometimes his discipline, his hope. The effect, our response, is that sometimes planned and sometimes spontaneous reply to that revelation that we call worship. A model for this is found in Isaiah chapter 6. Some of you memorized those eight verses, those first eight verses of that vision of Isaiah in the presence of God. Isaiah was so overcome with the holiness of God that he fell on his face. God revealed himself to him in that holiness. The cause, the effect was, the prophet Isaiah and his natural, natural worship response was contrition. That's the effect. He said, woe is, woe is me, for I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. That revelation uh, continued, and God revealed his mercy, the cause to Isaiah. And Isaiah's worship response, the effect then was service. Here am I, send me. Now, this is huge for us as worship leaders because this should take the pressure off us to feel like that we're responsible for creating worship or working up worship every Sunday when we gather together. Those worship actions and our, our worship leadership may prompt and exhort and remind and prod and encourage more effect, but they can't cause cause. We can acknowledge that cause, but we can't generate it. And we can respond to that cause, but we can't initiate it. And we can celebrate that cause, 
but we can't create it. He, God, has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light that we may declare his praises. He calls, we declare. Cause and effect. See, worship, as we think about worship, our worship doesn't invite God's presence. It acknowledges it. So how arrogant, then, is it for us to assume that what we sing or how we sing it determines if God shows up or not? He was there long before we got here, waiting for us to acknowledge him, waiting for us to respond. There's a third principle that Jesus says, too. He said, we must love God with all our minds. Even as worship leaders, we often wait for the first song to occur to engage in worship. But worship requires more than just an emotional response. It also, I think, requires mental preparation. Loving God and loving others, Harold Best said this, loving God and loving others, or worship is continuous just depending on whom or what you're worshiping. So it requires us to think about it, to ponder it, consider it, to process it, to meditate on it to study it and learn how to get better at it. In his letter to the church of Philippi, Paul exhorted them and he said that whatever is true and whatever is noble and whatever is right and whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, he goes through this litany, whatever is admirable. And Finally, he just says, well, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, meaning worth our worship, think about such things, Paul says. Love the Lord your God with all your minds. We could learn a lot from the Jews who believe that Sabbath began at sundown the evening before they actually gathered together. So the things with which we fill our minds, even as worship leaders, the things we watch, the people we're with, the places we go, could negatively or positively impact that gathered worship when we get together that next morning. As many of you maybe have done before, when our daughter was five years old, We took her to Disney World for the first time, and we did the big reveal a few months out. She was five or six years old, and now she's 30 and married, but I still remember that first trip, and we were going to get on the plane, and so we did the big reveal. We told her all about it, and she was excited. She was thinking about it for months. We got on the plane, got to the resort the night before. The night before we got ready to go to the park the first day, she laid her clothes out on the bed like a firefighter getting ready to go to a fire the next morning. She went to bed early, which never happened. She got up early, which never happened. She inhaled her breakfast. She was ready long before it was time to go to the park. And when we actually got there, she took our hands and she was trying to sprint to get through the gate because she could see the castle ahead. See, she'd been thinking about it for months. She'd been dreaming about it and planning and preparing for it. She was longing for it. Her mind was so focused on it that she couldn't think of anything else. And she couldn't sleep because of the excitement. What if we had that same attitude about worship and worship leadership? So when we offer our prayers and we read and listen to and study our scripture text, and when we gather at the Lord's Supper table and we sing and play our songs without engaging our minds, it can lead to thoughtless worship. There's a fourth element that Jesus talks about this principle when he says, we must love God with all our strength. See, worship is a verb. Robert Weber wrote a book probably three decades ago and then then had a a revision of that. uh, And the title is Worship is a Verb. It's something we do, not something that's done for us. It requires action. Many of you know the passage in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Maybe you have that memorized. And that, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, that you offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. 
Loving God with our strength means that we offer all of ourselves to, to Him, not just our songs. Our physical strength, our abilities, our time, our talent, everything is given to God in worship. And loving God with all our strength requires sacrifice. It requires us to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. We haven't seen a lot of that over the last couple of years. And loving God during this last season has required some of us, even in our worship, to make some sacrifices. But the understanding of this worship sacrifices is that worship sacrifice is only possible if our common ground is deference instead of preference. It means we're willing to defer. That's that willingness to set aside our own selfish desires and preferences because we love these people with whom we worship more than we love those preferences. My dad died last summer at the age of 89. And, and uh, he and my mother, my mother's still living, is now living in Alabama in assisted living. But they were in Oklahoma where I grew up. And, and my dad was uh, an avid golfer. And so at the age of 75, he, he was playing golf still four days a week, four or five days a week. Uh, and he actually would walk the course too. So he wasn't even riding. He was walking the course at the age of 75, which is something I probably don't even do now. But at the age of 75, he was doing that. And we don't know if, if, if he contracted this on the golf course or maybe mowing his yard or just being outside. But at the age of 75, my dad was bitten by a mosquito and contracted uh, West Nile virus. He was in the hospital for 100 days and almost didn't survive. We, in fact, it, the disease was so, uh, so bad for him that the doctors just said, we have to just see where the bottom is, and then hopefully he will climb out of that. He, he actually uh, recovered uh, mentally after occupational therapy and all those kind of things, but never completely recovered physically. So the last 15, 15 years of my dad's life, he spent in a wheelchair. And it was a powered wheelchair, and he was able to transfer himself to and from the car and to his recliner and the bed and the restroom, those kind of things that, that are required. And so when my mom and dad would go to church, or they'd go to a restaurant, or they'd go out to eat, uh, or go to a movie, or anything they did, it required my dad wheeling his chair to the passenger door, transferring himself into the seat, and it required my mother, who was the same age as my dad, even in her 80s, to take that power chair and wheel it around to the back of the vehicle and put it on the lift and strap it on there and raise it up. And then when they got to the location, she had to do the same thing in reverse, no matter where they went, church or restaurant or wherever. Now, if you were to ask my mother if she wanted the last 15 years of her life to be strapping a wheelchair on the back of her car in the rain or snow or sun or cold, Obviously, the answer to that, that wouldn't have been her preference for the last 15 years of their married life. But my mother loved my dad more than she loved those preferences. So she was willing to sacrifice because she had that love for him. So offering our bodies as living sacrifice or loving God with our strength means that the battle lines are drawn over who can offer or give the most instead of who demands or deserves the most. I'm, I'm a big baseball fan. Uh, as probably many of you are, and even if you're not a baseball fan, I can't imagine you wouldn't be, but even if you're not a baseball fan, uh, there are, you will know these terms. There are a couple of uh, baseball terms that are, that are sacrifices. There's a sacrifice fly and there's a bunt. So even if you're not a baseball fan, you probably know that understanding. The sole purpose of a sacrifice in baseball is to advance another runner. You sacrifice yourself in order to advance somebody else for the good of the team. In fact, they call that sacrifice bunt, they call it laying down a bunt. What a great picture as we talk about this deference instead of preference when it comes to worship. Fifth and final one is this. 
Jesus commanded them that we must love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Love our neighbor as we love ourselves. See, worship is not just what we do in here. It's also who we are out there. In his book, Christ Plays in 10,000 Places, Eugene Peterson said this about worship. He said, worship is the primary means for forming us as participants in God's work. But if the blinds are drawn while we wait for Sunday, then we're not in touch with the work that God is actually doing. The second part of this commandment, Jesus said, is just as great as the first. Loving our neighbor as we love ourselves is just as great as loving him, God, with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So it doesn't matter how good our worship has gotten in here, it's incomplete until it also includes how we treat our neighbors out there. Several years ago, Ron Edmondson wrote an article, and the title of that article is, When Did Christians Become So Mean? I think social media has contributed to that meanness these last couple of years. One of the things he said in the article was that he interviewed some people about, uh, especially restaurant servers, about the service. The intent wasn't to, to gig Christians during that time, but he was just asking them questions like, when's good service, when are great tips, when are bad service, when are bad tips? And the restaurant servers said to him that the worst hour of the week is what they call the church hour. That's that hour when church is let out and the people go to the restaurants. They said that's the worst hour of the week for tips and condescending attitudes. When did Christians become so mean? Before I came to the convention 21 years ago, I served as a worship pastor in a local church in Kansas, and I had been there for 13 years. And one of those uh, years, we were working on Christmas music. We were getting ready for a big Christmas event that was coming in the next night. We'd been rehearsing for months. We had our final rehearsal on Saturday morning. We were meeting in the worship center, and much like this, it had a center aisle, and the, the choir was in the loft, and the orchestra was on the platform. My back was to the, the seats, the pews in the auditorium. It was a Saturday morning, so nobody else was there. And we had about six hours of, of rehearsal needed and about three hours to get it done. So there, there was not a lot of levity going on. I was pretty driven. I was pretty stressed. And so I didn't need any distractions. Well, I could tell by the look on the faces of the people on the platform that, that somebody had come in to the back. And I was thinking, great, a distraction. And so I turned around. I saw that a guy had walked about halfway down. And I could tell by looking at him that he had some benevolent needs. And so I, I thought, if I don't deal with this now, it's going to continue to distract the choir and the orchestra. So I said, folks, if you'll hold on just a minute, I'll be right back with you. I met him about halfway back, and I, I asked him if I could help him. And he said, well, I, I've lost my job recently, and my family has some needs. Uh, we, we have some, some food needs. We need some gas for our vehicle. And we would love to buy our kids some Christmas presents. Do you think your church could possibly help us? Here's my response. We're right in the middle of a rehearsal because we're getting ready for a worship service tomorrow night. And we only have three hours to, to get ready for that. So we don't really have time to help you with that right now. But if you'll come back on Monday to our office, we'll help you. And obviously, he never came back. You see, in that moment, I was more, I was more interested in doing church the next night than actually being the church in that moment. And I wonder, I wonder what our worship could have been like that next night. If I'd just taken a few moments to worship uh, as an act of worship to serve this man and help him, what would that have modeled for the choir and orchestra? We are losing ground if we exhaust all worship resources, 
preparing and leading uh, our, our church services as worship while neglecting to prepare and lead our churches in service as worship too. So we've got to lead and model and teach our church to worship not only when we gather with our church family, but also when we disperse back to our neighborhoods. Loving our neighbors and active worship means that worship is not just a weekly event. It's also a daily occurrence. If our only voice as a congregation, if our only worship voice as a congregation is that one hour on Sunday, then what are we worshiping the other 167 hours of the week? And when our worship focus is just what we do on Sunday here, then we gather together. When we gather together, we expect our worship leaders to light this worship fire from scratch every Sunday with that opening song. And if that fire is not ignited, we often blame the music or the musicians, even though uh, we, as a congregation, did nothing ourselves to stir those embers during the week. Because of the laborious task of creating fire, early nomadic people, when they actually discovered fire and how to actually create fire, they realized how difficult it was because they were nomadic that every time they would move from camp to camp, they would have to recreate fire again or start a fire from scratch each time. And so what these early nomadic people did is they, they created these earthenware vessels, these pots called fire pots. And when they would move from camp to camp, the first thing they would do in the morning is they would take some of the embers out of that existing fire and put it in that fire pot. And then as they were moving from, from a, new, a new location from camp to camp to settle for the evening, instead of having to recreate that fire when they settled, all they had to do was take some of those embers, and as they were traveling, they just kept feeding that small fire with kindling to keep that fire going. So when they got to the evening camp, all they had to do was add those embers to some kindling, and pretty soon they had a raging fire. What could occur in our worship on Sunday? If we as leaders and our congregations had that same understanding of worship and saw it as a, as a flame that we can take with us and not something we start from scratch every Sunday, that means it would continue as we leave the service, even as we go to the restaurant and people are serving us. It could happen in our homes and school and through our work. It wouldn't be contained in a single location or context or culture or style or artistic expression or vehicle of communication. Then when we gathered on Sunday for worship, instead of depending on our worship leaders to start that fire from scratch, they could just help us fan those flames that already exist. And can you imagine what kind of worship could occur in our gathered worship if we as Christ followers could learn to love God with our heart and soul and mind and strength and love our neighbors as we love ourselves in scattered worship too. Worship in here would then be an overflow of the worship that's been going on out there throughout the week. Can you imagine what that could be like? See, Jesus combined our love for God and our love for others. They were inseparable worship actions. So worship isn't just our response to God's revelation through the songs we sing on Sunday. It's also our response to the rhythms and harmonies of life on Monday too. I don't want you to miss one thing and then I'm going to close. 
If you look back at that, that commandment that Jesus gave and note from the passage that that, that that list of heart, soul, mind, strength, and neighbor, they're, they're not condensed to a list that's just separated by those quick commas as they're listed out there that here's these lists of things. But if you go back, each one of those phrases, uh, he starts that, that you must love the Lord your God with all your and with all our, or with all your, is repeated with each noun to place equal value on each of those faculties. And Jesus said, there is no commandment greater than these. So loving God, with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind, and with all our strength, and loving our neighbors as we love ourselves, worship must spring forth from every aspect of our being or it may not be worship at all. Let's pray together. God, thanks for that reminder, that commandment from your word, that responsibility that sometimes, and as I think of the beginning of that text, that, that, that Jesus said to those, and he's saying to us, listen, O Israel, listen, O people of God. Sometimes we fill our worship up with noise, and we're trying to generate that worship instead of responding to that revelation in our lives. Thank you for that reminder this morning. And as we leave this place, remind us that worship continues. We pray this in your name. Amen.